Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. All right, what's up, Transit Church? Good to see you. Uh, Happy Sunday to all of you. If I've not met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you've joined us today. Um, If this is your first time joining us, we say hello. We hope that you are encouraged as you continue to worship with us. We would love for you to do a a favor for us. Um, We would like to know who you are, and one of the ways that you can help us to get to know you is by going to our website, transitchurch.com. There's a contact page, and very simply, you can fill in the information, fill in your information, Let us know that you are worshiping with us and we're connected. So we would love for you to to do that. Uh, I'm excited to be with you all today. Uh, We're going to finish our series in Daniel. And I got to be honest, um, we got a doozy of a passage. In fact, we're going to be covering two chapters. uh, As is our tradition, we're going to read a a couple of passages of Scripture up front to whet our appetite as to what God has in store for us. We're going to read a passage both from uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12. So break out your Bibles. It's chapter 11. We'll read verses 2 through 4. Then we'll flip the page. And in chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, the word of the Lord. And now I will show you the truth. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now flip over to chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, And there shall be a time of trouble, never as seen before, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the gathering of your church. Thank you for our assembly. The scattered church is all around and in our homes and elsewhere, but by the Spirit, we're together today. 
We're reminded that uh, your word is, is God-breathed, that it's useful to us for teaching and, and reproving and correcting and training us in righteousness. And so this is one of those, those times, Lord, and one of those passages uh, that we need you to do that. Would you make your word useful to, to us and teach us? More importantly, would you, would you draw us by your spirit to Jesus and, and, and transform us into his likeness? And in his name we pray, amen and amen. All right, Transit Church, so this sermon brings to an end our three, three-plus-month uh, time in the Old Testament book of, of Daniel. And the theme that we have been uh, teasing out is the idea of faithfulness in exile. When we first met Daniel, it was late 7th century, around 605 B.C. Judah had turned their back on their covenant relationship with God, and even after warning after warning, uh, God eventually used the nation of, of Babylon and the ruler Nebuchadnezzar to uh, overthrow Jerusalem, and he sends Judah into captivity, uh, into exile, an exile that would last 70 whole years. And so uh, this book of, of Daniel has given us a picture of what the captivity of Israel looked like. More specifically, it's given us a picture of what Daniel's faithfulness in exile looked like. You know, one of the unique things that we have gotten to see about this, this book of Daniel is that we've gotten this distinct view of history. More importantly than just a, a view of history, we've gotten a particular God-centered view of history. And we particularly see that in these two chapters today, uh, definitely chapter 11, uh, as it closes out the book. Chapter 11 reads almost like a, a textbook, a, a history textbook, where we learn that God is not just a bystander that... Um, that, that creates the world, spins it up, and then backs away. But really, God is, is involved in the world. He's, he's a God of, of history. That's what we see in this book of Daniel. And so we're encouraged that amidst the trials that come and, and the bad things that can happen, that God is still in control. Amidst the, the kings and the kingdoms that come and go, that rise and fall, God is still in control. And among all the things that we've learned in this book, this book calls us to perseverance. That in the midst of a hostile world, it tells us, don't give up, church. It calls us to faithfulness. And as we approach this, this last section of the book today, and as we conclude it, we get this message of hope. The Bible tells us that, that, that kingdoms will rise and fall, but there is a kingdom that will, that will last forever. And that's the kingdom of God. Uh, one commentator this week that I read, had these uh, summarizing words about the whole book of Daniel. And here's what he says. He says, the promise of God throughout Daniel has been that our sovereign God has delivered and does deliver and will deliver his people from opposition, oppression, persecution, and the extreme persecution that will come at the end of time. Amidst the challenges we face, he promises that he will raise his people from the dead and they will reign with him in his glorious land for all eternity. I mean, that deserves an amen. That's what we have to look forward to amidst all that's going to happen. And that has happened in our world. We look forward to a world without end where we're with God forever. So this is a prophetic book, and we've been looking at several prophecies. Uh, we talked about prophecy before, but the reality is, you know, prophecy can sometimes be hard to 
interpret. And that makes, makes us ask, you know, I mean, what's the point? What's the point of all this prophecy stuff? And God uniquely answers that in Isaiah. Uh, we're going to look for a second at Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 9. Here's what the word says. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives trust to God knows what he's doing. And what God says is going to happen is actually going to happen. And that should encourage us. But more importantly, it should be a reminder to us that in fact our God is in control. All right, so. So we're looking at to prophecy today, the and the prophecy that we're about to read involves some nations that you probably have never heard about, unless you're a historian or you get into, into history. So a map of, of this area uh, during the 3rd, 4th century B.C. would be helpful. So I'm going to show a map real quick. And the kingdoms that are involved, when our text says uh, the, the kingdoms of the north and the kingdoms of the south, is talking about two distinct nations that you've heard of. In the north, you have Syria, a.k.a. the Seleucid Empire. And in the south, you have Egypt, a.k.a. the Ptolemaic dynasty or, or empire. And of course, notice who you have right there in the middle, Israel, the, the, the territory that makes up their land. But more than just Israel, these are, these are God's people. And so in the narrative, the kings of the north and the kings of the south are constantly duking it out. Okay, They're going back and forth in this never-ending fight. And of course, guess who's constantly caught in the middle? You got it. It's God's people. And the text actually shows us why God has his people caught in the middle. And so as we work through our these two chapters today, um, I'm going to break the text down into really four parts, not necessarily four points, but four parts of Scripture. And the first deals with these first 35 verses in chapter 11. And in, and in these verses, there's 360 plus years represented in all these verses. And it's seemingly all very precise foretelling of, of what is to come from Daniel's, from Daniel's uh, viewpoint. This is a continuation of, of the angel in chapter 10, giving a vision to Daniel in response to Daniel's prayer as he's concerned with what's going on with the returned Jews who have already gone back to, to Jerusalem. So the angel gives Daniel a prophecy projecting 360 plus years into the future. All right, so obviously it's a lot of verses. We're not going to go through all these verses and all these prophecies. Uh, it would be a lot, and I don't think it would be helpful for us to, to actually unpack the, the, every nuance that we're, uh, that we're going to, to have here in these 35 verses. And some of you are saying, Jeff, man, thank you. Can, uh, can we just hit the highlights? But there are a few of you that, that are into details, and, and rightly so. Um, but more so, here's, here's why we're not going to necessarily unpack every, I mean, like, like, like 10 prophecies here. Um, we want to get into, get into the text, but we don't want to miss the grand scope of what the angel is bringing to Daniel. It's almost the, like the adage, uh, you're going to miss the force, the, 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 the overarching thing that you should see for your, uh, for your, pay, you know, your, your intent look at all the trees that are there. And so we want to understand what the angel is telling Daniel and that he's supposed to carry forward for, for people like us. And what is that? Here's the main point that he's bringing. God is in control. That's why he's written what he's written. And God has already written the future. And so we're going to look at two passages in chapter 11 first to, to give us an appetite of what all these prophecies in chapter 11 are all about. Uh, chapters, uh, chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. Let's read those verses uh, one more time. But what, here's what I want to do. 
I'm going to read those, and as I read it, I'm going to read uh, in a way that may be a little bit more helpful. I'm going to read these, and I'm going to actually insert the names of the people, of the rulers, of the kings that the, that the text is actually talking about in hopes that it gives us a more full picture of actually the prophecies that, that God is giving Daniel and the things that actually come to pass. So here it is, chapter, two, chapter 11, verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Pause there. All right. Who are these three kings? After Cyrus, king of Persia, the one that we met last week in chapter 10, guess what? There's going to be three more kings, and their names are Cambyses, Smyrdas, and Darius I. So these three kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth king, Xerxes I. Remember Xerxes? Remember the movie 300? Don't pretend like you haven't seen the movie 300. Uh, Xerxes, he was one, he's a, a godlike figure that was rich. He like, uh, Sweated gold. Okay, look at what the text says. It's a fourth king, Xerxes, will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. All right, I want to pause there again. So this that's just chapter two. In fact, we haven't even finished reading all of chapter two. But the the, the few words that we've just read, those encompass 207 years of actual history. All right. So that verse is compact with a lot of things that have happened. Verse three, and a mighty king will rise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Who's verse three talking about? It's talking about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great became one of the most uh, important rulers, one of the most dominant rulers in, in all of all of history. Alexander the Great in six years conquered all of the known world. And it's good that he did it in six years. Why? Because he died at 33 years old. And here's what the text says next. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. What happens to Alexander the Great? What happens to his kingdom after he dies? It's divided up amongst his four generals. And basically they take his empire and they fragment it into four different territories. The uh, Macedon and Greece, Thrace, Syria, and Egypt. The text goes on to say, though not of his own descendants. What's that mean? Two of Alexander's own sons, Alexander IV and Heracles, were both murdered. So they didn't inherit all that was his. And so on, so on it goes. Here's the case in point. In these four verses, there's nine people, there's, there's nine rulers, uh, rulers, uh, and the extent of their reign is all prophesied about. Secular history proves that all this was true. And so a, a Christian author wouldn't have to pre pre present an apologetic trying to defend what the Bible is saying right here. You can just open up any history book and the names and the events and the reigns of these kings are going to be displayed for all to hear. History corroborates what's right here in the Bible. And for us, it helps prove to us and to all that, you know, that appeared into uh, things of faith that what God says is going to happen. All right. Let me give you one more, one more example. Jump down to verse six. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he and his arm shall not endure, but he shall be given up 
and her attendants, he who fathered her, he who has supported her in those times. Like, what, what? Like, what is, what is that saying? All right, again, I'm going to, I'm going to quote from the ESV Study Bible. For those of you that like really get into the details, can I recommend something to you? Go spend $37, buy you a heartbound ESV Study Bible. The ESV Study Bible is going to take every last one of these verses. It's going to give you charts and maps and names and dates. It's going to fit secular history with what's happening in thus saith the Lord. So I, that would, I hope that would serve you well. Here's what's going on. There's this constant conflict, of course, between Egypt and Syria, between the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid kingdom. Uh, and this happens around 250 B.C. In fact, in 250 B.C., uh, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, who is uh, the king of the south. What's king of the south? It's Egypt, right? Okay. He attempts to make peace with Antiochus II, the king of the north. What's that? It's, that's Syria. And how does he attempt to make peace? He sends, he intends to send his daughter Berenice to marry Antiochus II. All right, so there's plan going on. And of course, that, that's in fulfillment of the, of the words that, that Daniel gets. The daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Okay, and so Antiochus II, he's like, I, I like that idea. I don't mind taking on another wife. And oh, by the way, having, um, perhaps a little influence, me and Syria, over what's going on in Egypt. Uh, at least that's what he was thinking, perhaps. Uh, and so here's what Antiochus II was planning to do. He was going to divorce his first wife, uh, Laodice, disinherit his own sons so that he could marry Berenice, have some kids, and those children, of course, uh, grow up and rule over the Seleucid kingdom. Sounds like a good plan, does it? doesn't it? Well, it doesn't work out that way. Uh, so, so the drama builds. Uh, wife Laodice uh, finds out somehow about this, this plan that her husband is going to divorce her, disinherit the kids, and marry some other. And what does she do? She kills him. She kills Berenice. And before you know it, everyone else is dead, and Laodice is standing with a vial of poison. Crazy. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up, at least not in advance. And, and, and this is here for us to see what God says is going to happen is going to happen. I mean, God is the God of history. God is that precise. And if the precision by which God enables his prophets to foretell the future doesn't comfort you, Transit Church, I think it should. I think one of the implications of this is we should be able to look at our own lives, look forward, even look back, look forward and and think these thoughts. Man, if God can take 300 years of just like secular history and have it all under control with rulers and nations coming and going, rising and falling, surely he can handle my, my simple, silly little problems. Amen to that. So uh, these verses, all these prophecies that are happening in chapters, chapter 11, verse 1 through 35, this represents 14 different kings, kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, kings rising, kings falling. There's not a one of these leaders that didn't have some aspiration that what he did and when he did it was going to have some giant impact on the world. I would go one step further. There's not one of these kingdoms, these, these rulers that did not intend to dominate the world. I mean, that's, that's what's going on here. They, they, they rose to the top. They did their thing for a little bit. And guess what happened? They died. Just like all they go the way of all people. They, they died. 
There, there's a finitude written into every one of these people. Why? Because there's no kingdom on the face of the earth that lasts forever. And so let me just say this to you, Transit Church, in, in, in all earnestness. And some of you are going to receive this. Some of you might, might resist me a little bit, but, but just open your heart just for two seconds. Don't, don't put your faith, don't put your hope, don't put your trust in any kind of political party. Don't put your faith, don't put your trust in any category of political person. I'm not against politicians. I'm not against politics. But like the dust of the earth, there goes those people that we put our faith and trust in, particularly when it comes to to, to worldly rulers. They're they're here one day, they're gone the next. And I can hear some of you with with, with a little bit of back talk. But but, but President Trump is really supporting all the things that I value. I mean, he's he's just he's satisfying the conservative conservative agenda like to a T. But 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 Vice President Mike Pence is a is a full on display Christian, like quoting the Bible, doing all the I mean, he's just he's a follower of Jesus. And we see it out there in the open. I heard this on Fox News just a couple days ago. Secretary of Secretary of State Pompeo on Fox News said that Trump might be a modern day Esther. I almost threw up. And I'm not meaning to offend you, but, but, but here's since when, folks, did the Republican Party become our savior? Now, before you tune me out and <laughs> turn the broadcast off, just so you know, I, I'm as conservative perhaps as, as you are. I wave our, our country's flag. I've got a, a military retired ID card, 4.7 years of deployment in Iraq, uh, of willing to spill my blood for our country in defense of her to, to show for that. And if you really have to know, I'm a registered Republican, although I vote my, I vote my values. I don't necessarily vote for any Republican candidate. I am not against politics, and neither should you be. There's a there's space for politics in our lives, and we should be involved in that. But as believers, we're called to think about politics in a way that honors Jesus and sows into the kingdom of heaven. And if you can quote the U.S. Constitution better than you can quote verses in your Bible, something is wrong. And I say that to you, even if you're a constitutional lawyer and the Constitution is your is like your thing. Because America is not unlike all of these other nations, like the, the ones we're reading in the Bible that come and go. Rulers coming and going, rising and falling. The country that you live in is not unlike these nations. At some point, USA is going to be gone and done, gone and done. And your allegiances and your division will be all for naught. And so, so hear me in this. If, if all you're doing is putting your faith and trust in some man or woman who you think is going to rule our country and solve all of our problems, solve all of your problems, it ain't going to happen. Put your hope in Jesus. He's the only one who will rule over a kingdom that will last forever. Every other kingdom will rise and fall. Skip down to verse 20. This is going to be the second section of our text that I want to highlight for just a few minutes. Verse 20 and 21, then we're going to skip down to verse 28. Here's what verse 20 says. Then shall rise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in, uh, neither in anger nor in battle. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom his royal majesty has not been given. 
he shall not come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Go all the way down to verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work, uh, work his will and return to his, his own land. So there's a transition point happening right here in the text, and the focus is on Antiochus IV Epiphanes. All right, we've preached about him before. Pastor Nick preached about Antiochus IV back in chapter 8. He was the little horn that grew out of the four, and his realm expanded to encompass the whole world. Antiochus uh, IV uh, Epiphanes, I mean, he was, he was badder than bad. History shows that he uh, notably hated the church with, like, with a passion. He tried to persecute Jews at every turn. History shows that uh, he forbid worship of, of God in the in the Jewish temple in the ways the Old Testament law prescribed. History shows that he murdered 80,000 people, mostly Jews, in one single day. History shows that he went into Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, set up a statue of Jews that was the God that he served. He offered sacrifices to Zeus on the, the altar of the temple uh, Yahweh's temple. Many think that what Daniel refers to in verse 31 of chapter 11, when he says the abomination of desolation was in reference to Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, when he performed that act. All right. So the third section of scripture that I want us to look into happens in verse 36. Skip down to there. Verse 36 and 37. And the king shall do as he wills. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. And so scholars are split on exactly what this Verse right here is, is saying and what it's beginning to say, but there are pretty is there's pretty wide thought and consensus that beginning with verse 36 of this prophecy, the vision shifts from the dealings of Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes and transitions to a figure in the Bible known as the Antichrist, of which Antiochus the fourth typifies. And so, if you notice in the text. Uh, we didn't read all of it, but from verse 20 all the way through um, roughly 35 was focusing on uh, Antiochus, uh, the fourth epiphany. Why? Because he's the larger than life, you know, more evil than not figure in the Bible. And the main thing about Antiochus is he typifies. He he uh, he comes before what the Bible is going to describe as the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, of course, uh, we, we find about him in, in other parts of our Bible. First, second, third, John speaks of the Antichrist. Paul says this of, uh, uh, of the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so what does he call the, what does Paul call uh, or allude to the, the, the Antichrist? As he calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, verse four, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object or worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Skip down to verse 40. 
All right, I know we're, it's like a Bible drill this morning, but I'm trying to give you a taste of, of uh, much of chapter 11 and a little bit of chapter 12. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. All right, so again, I don't know if I said this, beginning at verse 36, this is the third section of Scripture that we're sort of dealing with, looking at four different passages that sort of uh, unpacks what da- the vision Daniel gets at the, at the end of time. And so in verse 40, uh, my, my eyes are trained on these words, the time of the end. I don't know what you think about those words. I mean, this is talking about like the, the very end. The, the very end of anything that, that that's going to be. And if you think about that in any form or fashion, that's kind of hard to, to deal with. My mind goes in immediately to like, man, well, what's that, what's that going to be like? And as, as the text uh, from verse 40 on kind of alludes to, it's, it sounds pretty bad. You know, one of the rules of dealing with prophecy is to recognize that there's always symbolism going on. And so in verse 40, it's basically alluding to, telling us there's a major battle taking place. It says the armies of the south and the armies of the north are going to go against each other and collide in the Holy Land. Okay, and in Scripture, what's the Holy Land? It's representative of Israel. But here's what I want you to, here's what I wanted to tell you and, and take it into consideration. This is prophetic language, and so it's symbolic language. What's being portrayed is not just, uh, again, the, the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids attacking uh, Israel proper in their land. It's symbolic. And so what's being portrayed is the Antichrist attacking the world. And he's not coming with, with, with dudes on horses and chariots and wooden ships. And so the, the, the prophecy won't come about exactly like we're reading it in our text. And of course, uh, the, the angels and Daniel are, are giving this the perspective they have in their second, third, fourth century B.C. minds of what exists in the world in terms of, of warfare. And so it's simply saying this. It's saying the Antichrist will come against not just Israel. It's going to come against the world and it's going to come with with great force. If you got horsemen and chariots and ships, what that means is you've got a significant force and you can pretty much do whatever you want to do with that force. I don't think we're supposed to superimpose horsemen as equaling helicopters or perhaps like, uh, you know, a, a nuclear power or anything like that, although it could be implying that. This is symbolism. But then we learn who he will attack. Verse 41. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. Uh, Again, uh, he will come into the glorious land. Remember our map from a few minutes ago? The the glorious land was, was what? It was Israel proper. It was Palestine. Uh, That's who God's people were defined to be in the Old Testament. That that was the church. Israel was was God's church in the Old Testament. But the church has has never really only been Israel. Theologically, the church began in in the Garden of Eden, where you have this picture of of God ruling over his people in the place that he would choose them. And they're willingly submitting uh, their worship uh, and their praise to him. That's a picture of 
of the church. And so in the New Testament, of course, Jesus comes in Matthew 16. He, he, he utters the word church for the first time. I will build my church, he says to the disciples, and the gates of hell won't prevail over it. And so what does Jesus do as he walks the earth and, and ministers to people? He eventually, by God's plan, goes to the cross. He dies in our place for our sin. God receives his sacrifice. He's resurrected. And then Jesus, what does he do? He sends the disciples throughout all the known earth. Okay, that's what Acts chapter one, verse eight is talking about. And so the question we have to, to ask ourselves is, where is the church now? Is it just in Israel? Of course, you read your Bibles, you know history. Uh, much of Israel rejects Jesus. And so if the church are those who profess faith in Jesus, uh, that's not inclusive of all of Israel. Now, the Bible does say that a remnant of Israel will be saved. And of course, I'm getting into a little bit of theology that's outside of, of what the text is talking about. But the church is not only confined to Israel. It is it's absolutely everywhere. It's everywhere that people are confessing the name of, of Jesus. And so the text is telling us that the Antichrist will attack the church, the professing church, the visible and invisible church. But he does have a special place in his heart for those who hate the church. And that's what it talks about when it mentions Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites. Who were these, these ites? They were those in the Bible that were Israel's like enemies. Okay, so in a sense, uh, what Daniel's vision is telling him, the enemy of my enemy has become my friend. So the Antichrist is going to uh, um, attach himself to anybody that's an enemy of the church. And collectively, they will come and try to overcome and overthrow God's church. Ain't going to happen. Skip down to verse forty five. This is one of my favorite verses in this in this text. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Hear, hear these words. Yet he shall come to an end with none to help him. And so here's the picture of 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 the end of the coming of the end. It is this one political global ruler, like the, the one who really had the might and the wherewithal uh, to, to do whatever he wanted. He had everything figured out. He had everything. He had everybody under control. And the text says he, like all the other kings and kingdoms, are going to come to an end, like just like that. All right. Last one, last uh, section of scripture to, to cover. And then I'll give you some concluding, concluding thoughts and we'll be done. Jump into chapter 12. Chapter 12, one, uh, verses one through four. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who was charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. All right. So the beginning of this part can can be kind of terrifying. And I think it's supposed to be. Look at the, the, the words here. He says, and there should be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that till that time. And so here's what this is alluding to. Antiochus uh, Epiphanes IV was, was a pretty awful ruler. 
and he did some pretty awful things. And the angel tells Daniel it's actually going to get worse, like worse than anything Antiochus did or thought or intended to do. It's going to get worse. But then don't miss what the first part of verse one says, because it's meant to encourage us. Remember the archangel Michael from Daniel 10, the one that uh, colluded with the, the heavenly being that came and brought God's vision to, to Daniel. Sorry about that, guys. Well, here's what it says about Archangel Michael. It says he's on our side. He, he has charge over your people. And so the latter half of verse one says, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book the, the, the vision talks about the, the book of life. What was the book of life? The book of life is referred to six times in the book of Revelation. It's a book that at some point will be opened by the lamb slain, right? Revelation. And it contains the names of everyone who in their life have trusted in Jesus, who've given their lives over to Jesus. And so, and so this vision says it's those whose names, it's those people who will be delivered. Who's going to be delivered? Those people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And, and here's the thing. We don't know if that's delivered from death or through death. But either way, I think it turns out pretty good. Whether you walk through pain and then you get to see Jesus and you're delivered, or, or perhaps it's like this. You walk through pain and then Unfortunately, you die. But then on the other side, you get to be with with Jesus. And here's what the, the text is telling us. Either way, it's going to be a good deal for you. Why? Because you're with Jesus. It's the same result. If you believe in Jesus, your name is written in the book of life. You're going to be delivered no matter how hard it gets, no matter how uh, bad it gets. And in the army, I deployed four times to combat in Iraq. I, had, I spent four years, seven months in my life. I've been shot at. I've been ambushed. I've been an ID attack. I've been mortared. I was an artilleryman, so that was like easy stuff for people who have deployed a lot. But I can't fathom the what's what's talked about, what's suggested, what's hinted at in these words about what it looks like uh, in this tumultuous tumultuous end of all things. But here's the thing. I, I don't even think I need to because the text says I'm going to be delivered. And so will you if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If this world blows up tomorrow, you're going to be delivered. If the coronavirus pandemic turns way worse than it ever is right now, the text says we will be delivered. And you got to admit, things are already pretty bad, perhaps not here in the Western world. But if we think about the oppression and the persecution that goes on for Christians that are in some places where all they have is a page out of their Bible and they're hunkered around that and they can be put in jail or beaten or, or worse, put to death for, uh, for a, a, a holding on to that. And so just like you can't close or cancel the church, not even the coronavirus can do that. We're still doing church in innovative ways. You can't crush God's church. God's kingdom reigns forever. That's the future of the church, folks. You can't destroy it. You can't crush it. Why? Because Jesus is the king and Jesus does not lose. A couple more verses and we'll be done. I won't read these verses in, in, in verse two. 
because we've already read them, uh, but it's talking about the resurrection. There's a couple of views on what happens when you die, like views, not necessarily in the Bible, but views uh, just out there, uh, written by people who think they know a lot. One of, the, one of the doctrines, one of the primary doctrines that people hold themselves to is a doctrine of annihilationism, which says when you die, that's just, that's just it. Like, you go in the grave, nothing else. Like, that's it. You're just dead. Everything is over. Your Bible does not teach that. Here's, here in this verse, we have pretty much the only place in the, in the Old Testament that talks about the resurrection, the, 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 a double resurrection, that everyone dies, has a, and that everyone dies, but we all have a soul. And if you have a soul, you're going to rise. Some will rise to, to newness of life. Some will rise to, you know, to, to go to heaven. Others will go to hell. And so because we all have souls, our souls are encompassed in, in bodies with organs on the inside. When we die, our bodies all get planted into the ground. But our souls rise to be with the Lord. That's, uh, you know, that's what we see with Jesus, right? And so if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it turns out good for you. But the text is also saying if your name is not written in the Book of Life, then it only gets worse. Verse 3, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Here's something unique about this, this verse. You know, uh, most times when people face increased persecution, they, they want to flee. They want to flee to wherever they can get away from. We flee to the mountains. I'm going to go hide in some hideaway somewhere. Uh, here this says, if persecution increases, holiness righteousness and faith increases. And the Bible is suggesting that we get rewarded for it. And that's the proper response. If we look over church history, when the church is persecuted, the church has historically grown like to explosive numbers of growth. Perhaps what we're experiencing right now with this pandemic will cause the church to grow. At least that should be our prayer, God, that you would grow your church even as we're being forced to do things that we don't want to do or that we wouldn't ordinarily do. I mean, meeting as a, as a scattered church. But because God's people are faithful, that's why the church grows. Increase the persecution of, the, of, of God's people. What's going to happen? Our faith is going to grow. And what happens? The church is going to grow. The church is going to increase. How great would it be if this, as, as, as things continue to get worse for the church? And this prophecy is suggesting that. So if you're reading a book that says you can live your best life now, your, your best life now is not going to happen now. Why? Because the earth is not spinning up to something greater. It's spinning, up to, spinning down to something, something that's far worse. So instead of running to our homes, shouting, God, help us and fleeing, we get to press in and say, God, we know this is happening for a reason. And we want to be like the people who turn many to righteousness. That's what the text says. Why? Because we know we'll be rewarded for it on the other side. Increase persecution, increase faith, increase the numbers in the church. You know, if we're honest, our typical reaction to stuff like this is really to fear. God, what's going to happen to me? What are you going to do to save me? Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 28, Matthew 10, 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't have to fear what's going to happen to us, transit church. We only have to fear, fear Jesus, and he's got our back. 
Don't, don't, don't fear those who can kill only the body. They cannot kill your soul. History proves Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, he tried to kill as many people, tried to kill as many of God's people as he could. He did not kill a single soul. There's only one person who can, the God-man Jesus, and that's the only person that we should also fear. So the question that's left for us to ask is, is so what? Like all these, all these verses, all these prophecies that we've received in Daniel, of course, Daniel 11 and 12 has had you know, just a lot of stuff for us that we haven't even touched yet. We're not going to touch it. You're going to have to read it on your own. But the, the prophecy really ends right here. In the next scene, starting in verse 5, Daniel finds himself on the bank of a stream. The two angels are near him. They're talking to each other. Daniel uh, gets the courage to go, and he inquires uh, as to what to do with all he's seen in the vision. He asks them, like, what's going to happen next? Uh, and in verse 9, here's what we read. They, they tell him, Daniel, shut it up. Seal it up until the time of the end. Uh, that's probably, the, that's probably not the, the, the response Daniel wanted to get. And of course, that's not the response that we want to get either. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, what in the world does that mean? Shut it up, seal it up until the time of the end. Can I, can I, can I, uh, guess what the angel is saying? I think he's saying, Daniel, trust God. I think he's saying, People of God, transit church, trust God. Don't trust the system because the system is going to fail you. Rather, trust your God. And of course, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I, I would admit that. That's one of the, that, you know, my big hangups is trusting God that he is God and he knows how to lead Jeff better than Jeff has led Jeff. We want so much. And sometimes we project what we want onto God to make it happen for us so that when we don't get exactly what we're asking God to give us, we lose our trust in God. And we're like, what's up, God? I trusted you to, to take care of me and to, you know, give me what I want. And then when he doesn't do that, we decide we aren't going to trust God anymore. Sometimes we actually do trust God. But then we get confused as to what that trust looks like. Sometimes that trust means like, like God, can you make me happy? Can you give me a, a big house and an affluence and a right, the right job and a title and uh, a happy family and all those things? And it's not that God does not want you to be happy. I, I mean, if you caught me three years ago, I would have said God doesn't care about your happiness, but he does. When you read of uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when God says blessed are those, he's talking about you being happy. But read closely as to what, to what that happiness entails. God wants you to be happy. But, but more so, church, he wants us to be holy. He wants us to be like Jesus. So let me conclude with, with one question. What do you need to trust God with? What is it? What is it as you think about this world not winding up but winding down, as, you're, as, 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 as you living faithful in the, the exile of our lives, what does it look like for you to trust God? And what do you need to trust God with? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this book of the Bible. We thank you for the picture that we've gotten of not just of exile, but more importantly, of faithfulness in, in exile. And we want to leave it being uh, more faithful people to what you called us with, with a little slice of life that you give us on the earth. But we want to be faithful. Like Jeremiah says, we want to 
um, to live fully. We want to plant our lives in the soil of the, the culture that you've given us and not be like it, but Lord, um, uh, influence it with the, the, the culture of heaven. And so God, we pray for your help to do that. Give us courage to do that. And even as we think about trust, I think of the words of, of Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Lord, uh, we can quote these verses. We say them often. They're hard to do. And so, God, firstly, we ask that you give us uh, just the, the, the courage to trust you with our lives more than we trust ourselves with it, knowing that you've proven in your covenant with Israel and what we see of you in the Bible, that you'll, you'll do exactly what you said. That's what prophecy is all about. More importantly, Lord, help us to not fear anything, not man, not government, not what the future may hold, but help us to put our fear in Jesus. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen and amen.